Before you listen in, we'd like to warn you that this podcast does contain explicit language. What is a substance? The definition of substance is so is much more varied, and I actually view it as really anything that is an escape. Every time I smell cigarette smoke, it makes me want a cigarette. Look, I know it's gross, but it's the truth. I smoked a lot for years, and like many smokers, it would even influence my schedule. After every meal, I'd be searching for my lighter. And in college, I would reward myself for finishing reading assignments and papers with a cigarette and sometimes a cup of coffee outside of the library or computer lab. Again, I know it's gross, but I do have fond memories of it. This week on It's Generational, you'll hear our panel of guests talk about substances, from smoking and iced coffee to alcohol and fentanyl. We'll also talk to experts about drug use statistics and harm reduction. We brought together a wonderful new group that includes KCBS anchor and reporter Jim Taylor, a baby boomer, astrologer and psychic medium Jessica Lenyaru, a Gen Xer, and two millennial Gen Z cuspers, journalist Nick F. Anderson, who is currently a student at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism in New York, and Harris Mojadidi, assistant dean at the University of California, Berkeley. I kick things off by asking our panelists what they order when they go out. So for me, this used to be Maker's Mark on the Rocks with a twist. But lately, I've been in the same boat as Jessica. Okay, so your question assumes I go out. Um, but I don't know that that's happening so much these days for me, which is a lot of a a lot of a like living through a plague situation as opposed to just uh, my age. But I have never really been into alcohol and that's definitely not about my generation. I have smoked more than my fair share of weed over the years, but I have never been a big substance user. I've always been around a lot of people who use substances. It's just personal to me. I, I don't really like feeling fucked up. Um, hey guys, I, 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 I smoked pot for the first time when I was 16 and I haven't stopped. Um, I thought it was wonderful and I always have, and it is my go-to. I, I, uh, smoke it every day. I think that it goes real well with caffeine. So I drink a lot of coffee every day too. I think it is generational. I think that, uh, before, before boomers, um, people generally grew up to be like their parents. And so they wanted to have a high ball when they came home from work. And that was it. That was substances, I think, for generations prior to mine. And then along came marijuana, at least for white kids in the suburbia, along came marijuana. And God, things changed. Everything changed. And I have always embraced that. And everybody I know that's my age is the same way. Um, I, I, I know a lot of younger people who are too, but you younger people, man, you, you're all into other things too. <laughs> um, I, I, I tried to put down most other things. And uh, in fact, I, I, I don't drink anymore. Um, but smoking weed is a way of life uh, for me and for a lot of people my age, always has been. I know I'm a big coffee person. I'm having way too much coffee all day long. I get kind of shaky about it. It's not cool. Oh, co yeah. Is everyone drinking coffee on this? As all the on, on the verge of Gen Z is drinking coffee at all hours is what we're learning so early in this conversation. <laughs> I know by definition, caffeine is considered a substance. Um, so I guess I do use that every, like I do consume caffeine every single day when I go out. I do typically gravitate towards 
beer, specifically PBR. And that is definitely the brand. That is a generational thing. I don't know if I'll ever break away from that. Um, I do like different beers, but I usually gravitate towards PBR. But in terms of my generation, I think that a lot of people are more open to using other substances. I personally don't, but I have seen like a big push towards the harm reduction side of using different types of substances, which I think is pretty incredible and something that I'm very interested in like exploring in my work. You know, I come from a conservative culture. I'm I'm a practicing Muslim, but I'm also a gay man. And so uh, I'd say it wasn't until probably well past 21 years old that I had my first drink. And I'd say if there's two gay stereotypes I embody, it's definitely iced coffee and a vodka soda. And so I think those are definitely the two that I go to. But I also think being a millennial and um, potentially on the cusp of Gen Z, I think that the definition of substance is so much more varied. And I actually view it as really anything that is an escape for folks. And I think it looks different for people. And it could be sugar, it could be alcohol, it could be marijuana, it could be watching TikTok videos for, for two or three hours. I see a lot of health-based trends on social media, and it seems like some of the younger people I know are more interested in this type of thing than drinking or doing other substances. Do those trends really have an impact or are people still using substances that might be considered less than healthy? So I think a lot of it has to do with where you're located geographically and what your socioeconomic status is and what your own individual culture is. Um, So like in the gay culture and the queer culture, drinking is a very big thing. And I think a lot of that has to do with Bars are historically considered safe places for gay people. But in terms of shifting towards a healthy, crunchy granola lifestyle, I personally only know a small handful of people who are gravitating towards that. Um, A lot of people that are in my inner circle do use harder substances. I just personally choose not to. Yeah, I'd agree, uh, Nick. That really resonates a lot with me, too. I almost feel like in at least through the lens of being a gay man, I think it's a little bit of both. I think, unfortunately, uh, drug use is very heavy in the gay community and drinking. And I think it goes to sort of back to like bars being safe spaces and 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 sort of historically what the LGBTQ community has had to do sort of in, in dealing with all those traumas. But I'd say it's sort of coupled in with this very like granola, um, uh, soaked oats when... Um, you know what I'm talking about, uh, overnight oats. And so it's this interesting mix of very healthy, artisanal, lo- at least here in the Bay Area, right? Locally sourced, all of that. And there's still heavily, he- heavy drug use. And I think in the gay culture, because it in many ways feels underground still, it's not, it's, I feel like for me, it, it doesn't feel that way, but in many ways it still is underground from so- sort of other parts of society. I think you do see, uh, heavy, heavy drug use and and alcohol consumption. That's something that I personally struggle with being someone who's a practicing Muslim and someone that does come from a more conservative culture. It's it's sort of hard to to wrestle with, but I think there's also sort of um, at times a lot of peer pressure to to try to fit in. And so I think that uh, I know certainly a lot of uh, friends, whether they're they're queer identifying or not that struggle with like, how do I, how do I fit in socially when it could be harmful behaviors? And, and I think 
the thing what's going back to substances is that like you know if you drink too much coffee it's 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 not good for you if you have too much sugar like all of these substances could cause a lot of harm i just want to jump in uh to say as gen x and also as a queer person like that is not generation specific i don't think like the green juice and like a line of coke at night like that is i feel like a thing that transcends uh through at least the generations that are here um especially in the queer community where there's there's a lot of trauma and all that kind of stuff so i think at a certain age a lot of people get sober or just kind of change their priorities and their lifestyle and you know, when you first asked the question about substances, I was thinking drugs. But yeah, I think at least in queer community, in my, in my experience, like the conversation about wellness and what kind of habits we take on and which are actually harmful or disassociative, like that feels like, I don't know if that's like a generational thing or if it's like a queer thing. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to chime in because there's years between us, but not that much like that, that just resonates as the same. Yeah. I think you're. I think you're so right. Um, you go back to a Grateful Dead song, okay, about uh, uh, poor Jane living on Reds, vitamin C, and cocaine. <laughs> right. Right. All that a friend can say is, "Ain't it a shame?" As our panelists touched on, a lot can factor into how people use substances and why they use them. Back in my college chain smoking days, there were tons of other students doing the same thing people to bond with over my smoke break. Now, walking down four floors from my apartment to have a cigarette alone just doesn't have the same allure. It wouldn't even be the same if I was a student at my college campus today, since they banned smoking in most of the spots where we used to light up. To learn more about how substance use has changed from generation to generation, our team talked to Dr. Richard Miak, a co-investigator of the Monitoring the Future study, which is funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And what it does is it surveys about 40,000 to 50,000 kids throughout the United States every year in schools. So during school time, they fill out the questionnaire that we provide to them. And from that, we get kind of trends in substance use among 8th, 10th, and 12th graders in the United States. And so now, I think we go back 48 years, we go back to 1975. And some substances, like you mentioned, have really changed dramatically over time. So if you look at cigarette smoking, for example, back in 1998, if you ask 12th graders, what, you know, have you smoked a cigarette in the last 30 days? It turns out about 35% of them would say yes. And these days, our most current estimate for 2022, you ask the same question, that's about 5%. So it's come down sevenfold. And there's interesting reasons for that, which I'm happy to get into if anyone's interested. Whereas other drugs like marijuana use, in the last 10 years or so, the prevalence really hasn't changed that much among 12th graders, 10th graders, or 8th graders. And I, for one, thought that there would be big changes in marijuana prevalence. I thought it was going to increase as more and more states legalized recreational marijuana use, even medical marijuana use. But there is a new substance that younger generations have been gravitating towards. So from 2017 to 2018, and from 2018 to 2019, there were huge jumps in nicotine vaping. In fact, they were the largest single-year increases we've ever seen in 48 years 
for any of the substances that we measure. So, I mean, that was huge. Um, and then it continued to increase in 2019. It started to decline since then a little bit, but it still remains very high. And in fact, among eighth and 10th graders, vaping nicotine is the number one most common substance used by those students. So it's the prevalence is higher than alcohol and it's higher than marijuana. So this, this stuff's been around for fucking ever, right? And the desire to uh, change uh, your the atmosphere around you, the, the, the desire to uh, get high has always been with us and always will be, I think. And we always are looking for new and different ways to do that. And sometimes cloaking it in that health thing, right? <laughs> Hard seltzer. What? What is that? It's, there, are, there are all these drinks out there now that disguise the alcohol to the extent that it makes you comfortable for you to drink it. Right. You're not you're not really drinking alcohol. It's just a juice. It amuses me the way we fool ourselves. Right. We, we continue to do If I can make that more acceptable to me, then I'll do it, I guess. You know what I mean? Anyway. And I'm not sure, at least in my experience, like we still aren't in a place where we can talk about very openly about like sort of struggles we have with substances. And it's not perhaps accepted. It could be. But at least uh in my experiences, we aren't there where that vulnerability to actually discuss like what, like how that looks like in our, in our lives and, and how that impacts us. And I think that I can see that being potentially across all the generations and maybe it's just American society is one where we, we like to talk a big game about like self-reflection and doing the work. But when it comes to naming it and being vulnerable, uh, we're not there yet. And, I, and I've experienced that both for myself personally with um, I'd say like the, the, if there's a substance issue that probably is, is, is probably predominant to me, it's, it's probably uh, food and eating disorder. You know, I'm someone that's uh, more heavier set and it's, it's something that really is, is difficult to brace and talk about because of the way that our society views, you know, what can be a substance, right? And we think of alcohol, we think of caffeine, we think of drugs, but we don't necessarily think of sugar. We don't necessarily think of like, eating disorders across the spectrum as being substance abuses and so uh, or substances that can be abused and often are i think that could possibly really transcend the generations or at least in my viewpoint because you brought up a really good point about this vulnerability and you know finding ways to heal and to to make some of this stuff better when it comes to our relationship to substances uh, does anybody have like something they really want to see change as far as it Americans' relationship to substances or something in your community that you want to see be different? Christ, yes. We've got to do something about fentanyl. Uh, I, I go out in the streets of San Francisco uh, to do news stories all the time, and people are doing fentanyl. They're smoking this stuff. They've got the little, the little uh, foil thing going with a little straw, and they're right out in public, and there's dozens of them around Civic Center, and it's crazy. It's killing them. It's killing so many people um, that we, yeah. Something's got to be done about that. And on the other hand, I'm such a libertarian that I believe that there should all drugs should be legalized. I, I, I think we should legalize everything. And that, that takes the criminal element out of it. it. It takes a whole psychological element out of it. So, I, I mean, those two things, I don't know if they can live together. Right. I want to get rid of fentanyl, but I want to legalize everything. I don't know. How does that work? I would like to jump in on that. So 
a couple months ago, I was working on a story about harm reduction efforts in New York City, and I spoke to Jawanza James Williams, who is the head of organizing for Vocal New York. They're a grassroots organization that works on a bunch of different issues. He explained what you were talking about. You know, drugs need to be decriminalized because it changes the perception of the person who uses drugs. But in addition to that, there needs to be a safe supply chain. Um, so if you think about it, bars are considered safe consumption sites. And he said a really great analogy. He said, you know, during prohibition, I can make moonshine and you can make moonshine. Someone could take a shot of your moonshine and die in a second, but someone could take a shot of mine and have a good time. And it's not necessarily a nefarious or intentionally egregious act to cut certain drugs with fentanyl. It's just remarkably cheaper. And that ties back into this capitalistic society. And some would argue that capitalism isn't necessarily bad. That's neither here nor there. Um, but I would personally like to see attitudes change towards people who use drugs because how are you going to judge someone for just using a different substance than you? In America, we use a lot of substances. For example, data from the National Center for Drug Abuse Statistics indicates that more than 28 million people in the country struggle with an alcohol use disorder, equal to around 8.5% of the total population. Even more people are illegal drug users, and half of people aged 12 and older said they have illicitly used drugs in their lifetime. If so many people are impacted by drug use, why is there still such a stigma around dealing with it? Part of the issue may be connected to criminalization of drugs, particularly the war on drugs campaign kicked off by President Richard Nixon in the early 1970s. Several organizations, including the American Civil Liberties Union, the Drug Policy Alliance, and the National Harm Reduction Coalition, have identified the war on drugs policies as racist and harmful. We know that the war on drugs has failed, drastically failed. So uh, I think a lot of people are open to the idea of approaching substance use in a different way. We wanted to learn more about the harm reduction method Nick mentioned. So we reached out to the National Harm Reduction Coalition. They got us in touch with Tyler, a policy coordinator for the organization. If you ask one person what harm reduction is, they're probably going to give you a slightly different answer. So it's kind of one of those, in my opinion, a very flexible thing, I guess you could say. But harm reduction can be anything from providing people with clean syringes so that they can reduce the harm that's associated with using syringes for their substance use. It can be anything from providing people with condoms so that when they're when they are having sex, you know, they're able to reduce the chances of transmitting uh, an STD. Um, so harm reduction can be so many different things. I've even heard someone say harm reduction is making sure people know how to use a seatbelt, you know, because there's always a chance that if you get in a car accident, and you don't use a seatbelt to, you know, reduce the harm, the chances of being harmed in a car accident, like that's harm reduction as well. So it's such a broad and flexible thing. So that's how I like to explain to people what harm reduction is and what it means. Um, but to specifically give you a little information in regards to what I do as a policy coordinator with the National Harm Reduction Coalition. So I help to shift the legislation in, in a, a variety of different states. Um, right now, what we're focused on is educating the general public and shifting policy in a way that will 
reduce harm, of course, harm reduction. So we, we would love to see things such as uh, syringe safety programs, because we know that when people have access to clean or sterile syringes that, you know, that reduces the chances of them being infected with a bloodborne disease, such as hep C, hep B, HIV, and different things like that. Some other things that I work on is just educating like legislators on what harm reduction is and why we should try a different approach and working with other organizations um, that are on grassroots levels that are also doing the work and working directly on the grounds with people who are impacted by this. In your experience, do different generations have different attitudes about harm reduction as a way to address drug addiction issues? Yeah, I definitely see a, a difference. I would say across the board, I think that we see that the younger generation, m- millennials, Gen Z, tend to be a little bit more progressive in their political stances and things like that. And it definitely carries over to, um, you know, substance use and it not being viewed in, in a way that's not as negative and and lacking in humanity. I definitely feel like um, the younger generation are more open to understanding that people come from different backgrounds and the way that people end up, you know, using substances, you know, it may be as a result of so many different things. So they view individuals, I would say, in a more holistic manner, and it just carries over to substance use and response to, you know, things such as over the overdose crisis and things like that. Speaking of the overdose crisis, our panelists brought up fentanyl, a very powerful synthetic opioid that has been found in both opiates and other street drugs, such as cocaine. Has the increased prevalence of fentanyl changed the harm reduction landscape? It definitely has changed a lot of things, even in in southern states, you know, which is where I'm based in Houston, Texas, uh, and born and raised in the south and also working on shipping legislation in a couple of other southern states as well. But historically, you can look at laws that have been passed in the south and you see that they aren't typically harm reduction friendly, Um, but getting things such as even fentanyl testing strips legalized. A lot of people don't know that there's actually a way that people can test their substances for fentanyl to make sure it's not laced or anything like that. But in a lot of states, fentanyl testing strips are illegal. So something that can literally save lives is, is illegal and has become a political thing when it shouldn't be. Um, And so We've even seen Southern states recently, um, Governor Greg Abbott in Texas announced that he would support a fentanyl test and strip legalization bill. Um, So that was exciting to see. So the fentanyl being introduced into other substances has definitely shifted the narrative and shifted the perspective in small ways, but those small ways I think can build more momentum so more change can be made. Um, So when you can get, you know, a Republican conservative to ad- adopt any type of harm reduction um, policy, that's a, that's an amazing thing to do. I just hate that it's at the expense of so many lives that have already been lost as a result of fentanyl. So I have this, which is a overdose prevention kit from New York City. Inside of it, there are a bunch of different things. So there are two nasal Narcan, well, this is the off-brand naloxone spray, um, protective breathing, um, face mask to put over if someone needs mouth-to-mouth recitation. But also I have noticed that a lot more people, at least people within like plus five years, minus eight years, 
start carrying Narcan and Naloxone with them. And um, the bars, it's not all of them, but some bars in New York City, at least the ones that I frequent, will have fentanyl testing strips in the bathroom and Narcan behind the bar. When I worked at a bar, I put one of these behind the bar and I made sure there was one behind all the other sister bars. And yeah, I think I think it can live together. It's just the United States is a very slow moving, bureaucratic nation. So it, we may not see it in our lifetime, but I do hope that it does happen. And I think, Nick, like your point about like the the harm reduction and fentanyl strips, like that's something that I think perhaps maybe is generational in the sense that at my employer, like we, there are a lot of harm reduction wellness programs in place that do provide uh, student groups with fentanyl strips uh, and possibly Narcan as well. And so I think there's a lot that that's something that to me at least is is heartening or, or or gives me some hope that in at least educational spaces, which again, uh, we can talk about who has access and the barriers to education, but that's something that I do see sort of at least that gives me hope is that that on college campuses, we are starting to talk about it and provide, you know, whether it's fentanyl strips, Narcan, whether it's just greater education and, and awareness about this, that that gives me hope, at least for, for Gen Zers and beyond, that this can be something that can be better integrated. Again, caveat that who has access to, to these institutions of higher education. Totally. Actually, I wanted to ask Jessica because, you know, I'm not a, a Gen Xer, but I have like this kind of idea of Gen X. It's very tied to like Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. And that whole thing is also kind of tied into drugs and specifically uh, narcotics. Um, as someone, you know, who, who was in that era, do you see like similarities or differences between that particular narcotic scare and this one? So, I mean, I have a, such a different kind of experience. I'm from my I'm from addicts. I grew up around a lot of adult addicts who are boomers, not Gen Xers. Um, I was raised in Canada. I'm also in the Bay Area now. I I have this like slightly different experience. I think that there are more drugs now. I think that, you know, part of the Gen X experience is there's more violence and there's more drugs and there's more income disparity. Right. And so that exacerbates all of the mental health issues that can lead people to trying things that are not aligned with their best interests or just trying things because they're trying to get away from a feeling. Right. I mean, I think through all the generations, if you're in your teens or your 20s, you're going to be exposed to drugs you're going to be exposed to things that are not necessarily good for you. You try them or you don't. And hopefully you you kind of like evolve and, you know, choose healthier behaviors. Not necessarily, but like hopefully. Navigating the world of substances can be tough when you're young. And an even tougher thing to deal with is the fact that habits around substances you establish when you're young have the tendency to stick. Quitting smoking and even cutting back is not fun. I failed at it a bunch of times. And as Jessica pointed out, there are more substances on the scene now than in previous generations, making things even more confusing and complicated. So all of a sudden, in 2018, vaping just skyrocketed in terms of teen use of, well, basically nicotine. And it's a very interesting topic because it really divides the public health community. There's, there's a war going on, right? So the people who study adults and cigarette cessation 
They love vaping because the fact of the matter is, if you're going to choose between smoking and vaping, vaping is much less harmful. Of course, that's easy to say because if cigarette smoking is your benchmark, there's hardly anything in the world that's more dangerous than that and worse for your health. It affects negatively every organ of your body. And, and I don't need to get on my soapbox, but if you go to the CDC, and if you go to the website, you look at tobacco-related mortality. But I will also say, like, I didn't go to college. I, I am a counselor. I'm on a, a woo-woo counselor, but I'm a counselor. And so, like, to this question, what I really think about is what we need I can't really speak to like substances per se, but I can say what I feel like we need is greater emotional intelligence, like greater emotional tools so that we can tolerate how it feels to be the only person in the room who's not drinking or whatever it is, because it is hard (laughs) to be on a different vibe than everyone else. And it's also like the best thing to do for some of us, some of the time, or for a lot of us, a lot of the time. and. I think a lot of it comes down to like mental and emotional health issues. And there, of course, are many, like many things to consider within that. But we talk so much about mental health and we don't talk enough about emotional health because it is our emotional health that I think has so much to do with what we do to our bodies or how we distract like that, you know, as Harris was mentioning that like endless scroll on TikTok or whatever it is, like that's more about our emotions than our thoughts. And so it's hard for me to like pull that apart from addiction. And especially like when you're talking about like the drugs of of the Nirvana era, that's opiates, right? Like that's downers. Um, but I don't know, as a queer in San Francisco in the 90s, it was all the drugs. It was all the sex. It was all the things. And also that wasn't as many drugs as there are now. It can all seem a bit overwhelming, but there is hope. I think that the work that NHRC definitely is gives me a lot of hope because, um, like I said, the work it is so intersectional among so many different issues that our society is facing. And we are representing, I feel like, a community that is is like socially shunned in a way and so it gives it does give me hope I do feel like each generation has its own vice and so I don't feel like this gonna change but I feel like the more that we can adopt harm reduction methods and strategies I think that the world will shift to to being like more hopeful more accepting because harm reduction is also about just being accepting it's about about giving people autonomy Thanks for listening to It's Generational. We would also like to thank our panel guests, Jim Taylor, Jessica Lanyaru, Nick F. Anderson, and Harris Mojadidi for joining us, as well as our experts, Tyler of the National Harm Reduction Coalition and Dr. Richard Miak of the University of Michigan. Our theme music is by Zapdra. Check out our other episodes featuring this panel covering body image and news consumption. This episode was produced by Mallory Samara and me, Lauren Berry. Myron Kaplan is Odyssey's managing producer for national news podcasts. Please leave us a rating and a review. You can listen to It's Generational on the Odyssey app or wherever you find your podcasts.